Hey there, fellow linguistics enthusiast. Welcome back to this episode of Linguistics with Laura. Now, hopefully you've been thinking a lot about language, even more since my last episode about language, thought, and culture, because we're going to do a lot more thinking about language today. This episode is going to be all about something that a lot of people find incredibly annoying and dry, but I'm going to try and make it fun and interesting for you. Today's episode is going to be all about grammar or syntax, aka sentence structure. Now, in my humble opinion, syntax is one of the most complicated aspects of language. It's the most malleable and flexible and, frankly, just all over the place. As we dive into this episode today, I think you'll see why. Similar to morphology, which is all about the structure and makeup of a word, syntax is really the same thing, just instead of focusing on a word, syntax focuses on the sentence, which consists of numerous words that form something called a constituent. So a constituent is the natural grouping or part of a sentence, a sentence chunk. Now you may think, well, can't any bit of words within a sentence be considered a sentence chunk? Yes, you're right, but in order for something to be specifically a constituent, there's a certain set of boxes that need to be checked off before we can deem it as such. So to see if something is a constituent, you need to think to yourself, could this stand alone as an answer to a question? So if you take the sentence, the book is on the table, and then consider the question, where's the book? You could see how the constituent on the table could be used. Well, on the table is by no means a complete sentence, which we'll talk about a little bit later. It can stand on its own as an answer to the question, where's the book? So if someone were to ask you another question about the book, you wouldn't answer by saying something like, the book is, because that just is incomplete. The book is what? Well, yes, the book is makes up part of the complete sentence, the book is on the table. It doesn't stand alone as a useful chunk of a sentence, and it doesn't answer any questions, so it's not a constituent. Another way to tell if something is a constituent or not is if it can be replaced by a pronoun or sometimes a word like do. For instance, you could say either I bought a calendar today or I bought it today. And as long as you knew that the it in the second sentence is referring to a calendar, These two sentences perform the same exact linguistic and grammatical function. So because the calendar can grammatically be replaced by the word it, a pronoun, it's a constituent. Similarly, if asked, when did you buy the calendar, or when did you buy it, you could respond with simply just today, and that would make sense. Thus, the word today acts as a constituent as well. In regards to the word do, you could say a sentence like, I ate with so much gusto and speed that it made me throw up several times and regret my decision heavily afterwards. And yeah, I know that's kind of disgusting, but theoretically, you could refer to this entire phrase simply by using the word do and then just add a simple pronoun. As long as you know what the word do is referring to, for all grammatical purposes, saying the sentence, I did that, performs the same grammatical function as that long and winding, disgusting sentence I said before. So the third way to tell if something is a constituent is to see if a group of words can be moved around within a sentence and still make grammatical sense. So you could say something like, at the store yesterday we saw that guy from the news, or yesterday we saw that guy from the news at the store, and both of these are perfectly grammatical. The latter might sound slightly smoother, but overall these two sentences are perfectly valid. The only difference is that the constituent at the store gets moved around. You could also say, yesterday at the store, we saw that guy from the news, and this also makes perfect sense and has the same meaning. Thus, it's clear that at the store is a constituent. 
Okay, so why are constituents important in studying syntax? What's the point of studying pieces of a sentence when it's really the sentence as a whole that has the most grammatical strength, if you will? Well, contrary to what you might think, people don't perceive sentences as a group of words that get strung together like a popcorn garland on a Christmas tree, but rather people perceive sentences in chunks, aka constituents. So if it weren't for constituents, our words would all just float around like anti-gravity linguistic space or something. So if we think about sentences, what is it that makes a sentence a sentence? Well, we know that in order to have a sentence, we have to have one or more constituents. But what is it that bumps up just a constituent into something that is a complete sentence? Well, this would be the simple presence of a subject and a verb. Ironically, the word verb is a noun, but something one of my linguistics professors had our class do one day was use the word verb as a verb. So you take a subject, something that does some kind of action, and that subject verbs, if you will. So the subject does something or something happens, a statement of sorts is being made. The simplest and shortest type of sentence is the sentence with simply one subject and one single verb. An example of this would be the sentence, he runs. The verb run in this sentence is what's called an intransitive verb, meaning it does not allow the presence of a direct object to make sense. The he in the sentence is not running something, he is just running. So if you were to say, he runs the PTO meetings, then the verb run would be transitive in this case because the verb is doing something to a direct object, in this case, the PTO meetings. But what about words that can only ever be intransitive? Well, the word arrive is a good example of this. You can never really arrive something, you just arrive. Now take a verb like bring. Well, some words like run can be either transitive or intransitive depending on the sentence. The verb bring is always transitive. You would never say something like they bring because it doesn't make sense. They bring what? The word bring needs an object to make sense. They bring watermelon. If you can, try to think of verbs that fall into each category. So verbs that can only be transitive, words that can only be intransitive, and verbs that could be either. What you'll probably find is that at first, you think a word can only be one type, but then you think about it in a different context and realize it can be both because, well, as we all know, English is very weird and complicated. But transitive and intransitive verbs aren't the only kinds of verbs. You might be thinking of the most commonly used verb of all, to be. As you can imagine, this verb doesn't fall into the intransitive or transitive dichotomy, but instead is classified as something called a linking verb, also known as a no-action verb. If you say, she is tall, you're not really describing an action, you're just stating a fact. Remember that for a sentence to be a sentence, we need there to be a kind of statement. So we're still making a statement, it just doesn't really describe an action. Other examples of these verbs are remain, seem, smell, look, and you can think of a lot more, and I encourage you to do so. However, a couple of these words that I just mentioned can act as either intransitive or linking verbs. I'll explain. By saying the sentence, she looks angry, we're using the verb look as a linking verb. We're linking the subject with the adjective angry. However, if you say the sentence, she looks out the window on long car rides, you're using the verb look as an intransitive verb. The looking is being done, something is happening, an event. This type of distinction between verbs that describe an action or 
event versus verbs that describe a state of being represents the dichotomy of stative versus eventive verbs. And as you can probably infer by their names, I'm hoping, eventive verbs describe an occurrence or event of some sort. So, he pet the dog, or she eats the chocolate. Again, something is happening. A stative verb, on the other hand, describes a state, which makes sense. So, it is sunny outside, or we prefer booths instead of tables. State of fact, state of being. The last type of verb is something called an auxiliary or helping verb. This verb cannot stand alone as the main verb in the sentence, but instead depends on another verb to make sense. So take the sentence, she might go to the store. Can you figure out what the auxiliary verb is? Without the verb go, the sentence doesn't make sense. She might to the store. Might what? Or what about they may? They may what? You see how these words are verbs in a sense, but can't stand on their own individually? That makes them auxiliary verbs. If you were closely paying attention, you might have noticed that I just used an auxiliary verb a couple sentences ago. They can't stand on their own individually. And I actually just did it again, too. Might have noticed. A sub-branch of auxiliary verbs can be used to describe a possibility, obligation, or request. So an example of this would be something like, I might read that book this summer. The main verb here is read, while the modal verb might expresses a sense of uncertainty and possibility. Have you ever heard someone say the phrase coulda, shoulda, woulda when describing something that happened that could have gone differently? Well, they're essentially referring to modal verbs describing the hypothetical. While sentences can be as simple as two words containing a subject and a verb, also known as a predicate, sentences in English can become extremely long and complex. I tend to do this a lot in my writing. I struggle with wordy sentences, and this is especially true when I'm writing an essay where I need to meet a word count, if you know what I mean. Where sentences get long and complex is typically when you add some kind of dependent clause to an independent clause. So one example of this would be the appositive phrase, which is a sort of amplification of a word that immediately precedes it. This sounds pretty confusing, so let me give you an example. Take the sentence, my dear younger brother, a hilarious young man but a terrible cook, just came to town. You could easily have said, my younger brother just came to town, and it would have made perfect sense, but with the addition of the appositive phrase, a hilarious young man but a terrible cook, you add a further description of this brother through the usage of two commas, splicing the plainer version of this sentence in half. A second type of phrase similar to the appositive phrase is what's called the absolute phrase, which is composed of parenthetical elements that get set off to the side from the rest of the sentence. This is typically done with one or two commas and usually contains a noun and a participle. So an example of this would be the sentence, their heads held high, the soldiers fought like champions. If you've taken a language other than English, you've probably heard the term infinitive before. If you have, you know that an infinitive is a pure, non-deflowered version of a verb. Where most verbs are conjugated, meaning they match the subject they refer to, like in the sentence, she bikes at the park. An infinitive is a verb that has yet to be changed by its surroundings. It's like a chemical element that hasn't been bound to another just yet. So in English, we recognize an infinitive by the use of the word to, followed by the unchanged verb to eat, to run, to sweat, to drink, to bring, etc. So an example of an infinitive phrase would be a sentence that has a conjugated verb and everything, but part of the sentence includes an infinitive. So for example, his desire to destroy his competitor was stronger than his inabilities. 
We still have a conjugated verb here, the linking verb was, but we also have an infinitive, a pure and innocent verb to destroy. Well, I guess that's not a very innocent verb, but you get what I'm trying to say, I think. Another type of phrase that for some odd reason happens to be my favorite is the gerund phrase. I think the reason I find it so interesting is that it plays with your mind a little bit. It takes something that is normally a verb and makes it into a noun phrase. Take the sentence, smiling is easy. What do you think the subject of this sentence is? You might think there isn't one because there isn't really a noun, there's just two verbs. However, this is actually not true because in this case, the word smiling acts as the subject of the sentence. Then we have our linking verb is, which is a stative verb, and then our adjective easy. Thus, smiling acts as a sort of noun in this sentence. A gerund phrase can also be the object of a sentence. If you were to say something like, I like smiling, the I is the subject of the sentence, but the object here would be the word smiling. I don't know, I just think that's pretty fascinating. So one last type of phrase I thought would be important to talk about is the participle phrase. You might have heard of the word participle before, but if not, I can explain what it means. The participle or continuous verb tense involves a verb ending in ing. So, she is swimming in the creek. This would be present participle, is, happening right now. The past version of this would be something like, we were listening to music on the computer. The participle or continuous phrase describes a fluid state of being, something that continues to happen. If you say, we slept all day, that just simply describes something that happened and now it's over. If you say, we sleep all day, this implies a type of habitual action where this is something that occurs frequently. However, if you use the participle ing tense, we're sleeping all day, you get the sense that this is occurring in the moment, it's happening right now. We're walking to the store means it's happening in this very moment. That's, I think, one of the most important functions of the participle tense to describe what's happening in that very moment. The participle tense also includes passive phrases like the potatoes are boiled, where the verb boil is transformed into an adjective that is used with the verb to be. A verb tense similar to this is what's called the perfect tense. This is where we use the verb have to describe some kind of eventive verb, like I have crammed for this physics test for 10 hours. This would be the present perfect tense, as it's just happened, whereas if you said, I had crammed for that physics test for hours, it would imply that this cramming happened a while back. Where the participle and perfect tenses are combined is in a verb tense called the perfect continuous tense. Can you try and guess what this type of verb tense might sound like? Well, if not, that's okay, I'll tell you. Continuing with the studying theme here, take the sentence, I have been studying for hours, or I had been studying for hours. Can you see how we combine the participle and perfect tenses together? And you can get really wild with this verb tense too. It can actually be used to describe events in the future, believe it or not. Logically, this is referred to as the future perfect continuous tense. So an example would be something like, I will have been playing guitar for 15 years this December. The subject hasn't been playing guitar for 15 years quite yet, but come December, they will have played the instrument for that long. So I guess I decided to go on a bit of a tangent about verb tenses, which can be really complicated sometimes. So let me reel it in and bring it back to our discussion of phrases. If we take the participle tense using ing, we can say a sentence like, hiking in the mountains for days, the family couldn't have been more excited to get home. At the beginning of this sentence, set off by commas, we use the participle phrase, hiking in the mountains for days.
Another fascinating aspect of syntax that you might be familiar with if you've taken a language other than English is something called the subjunctive tense. Now we don't actually have an official subjunctive tense in English, but we are still able to use language to talk about possibility. Take the sentence, if I went to the party, I would have had a great time. In this sentence, we have two things going on here. The first part of the sentence is purely hypothetical. It did not actually happen. This person did not go to the party. In a language like Spanish, this would be considered the subjunctive tense. In the second part of the sentence, we have what's called the conditional. So similar to our discussion of modal verbs in the hypothetical, words like coulda, shoulda, woulda describe a conditional state, something that could have happened but didn't because you didn't do that original thing, which in this case would be going to the party. While English doesn't have an official tense dedicated to this hypothetical parallel universe existence of the what could have been, we're still able to describe it using our own forms of verbs and such. But the complicated nature of syntax by no means ends there. Have you ever noticed that in some of the sentences we say in here, there's a sort of sentence within a sentence? Something like, I was so upset that she decided to move down south. There's two things going on here. The subject I is upset about the she who moved down south. This is what's called a complementizer phrase. With complementizer phrases, we often use the word that to begin the second part of the sentence. However, the word that is actually one of the most multifunctional words in English. It can be used as a complementizer like we see here, but it can also be a pronoun if you were to say something like, I ate that yesterday. The that refers to a something that you ate. It can also be used as something called a determiner, which is a word that introduces a noun. So words like the, a, and, those, that, and this are considered determiners. A subbranch of determiners are quantifiers, such as words like many, much, few, a little, etc. Even numbers can be considered determiners since you could say a sentence like four swans are swimming in the lake. The four in this sentence introduces the noun and subject swans. But anyway, back to our word that. That is one of the most common ways to introduce a complementizer phrase, but interestingly in English, we don't actually always need the word that. So you could say something like, I wish that you would stop chewing so loudly. And by the way, I mean that because loud chewing is really obnoxious. But you could also say, I wish you would stop chewing so loudly. And that makes just as much sense, but you just don't use the word that. Other examples of complementizer words include whether, if, which, where, when, what, and how. So, I like when she smiles back at me, or it's cool how they made that musical into a movie. You get the idea. The complexity of complementizer phrases continues to be more complex with the presence of something called syntactic ambiguity. If we draw more parallels back to morphological ambiguity, we experience a bit of a similar debate. So a complementizer phrase can describe both a noun phrase and a verb phrase. So a noun phrase consists of something that acts as a noun in a sentence, and a verb phrase is something that acts as a verb in a sentence. I know, it's mind-blowing stuff. But let's take a look at a couple noun phrases. The book that I thoroughly enjoyed was written by my favorite author. What would be a noun phrase here? Well, which constituents act as nouns in this sentence? Think back to how we define constituents, something that can be an answer to a question. So which bits of this sentence act as a noun and could be the answer to this sentence? This would be the book that I thoroughly enjoyed, as well as my favorite author. 
If you were making a syntax tree diagram, you would see that the book could also count on its own as a smaller noun phrase, but as a more holistic and larger noun phrase, we group it together as the book that I thoroughly enjoyed. Now, can you determine which words here are determiners? You see what I did there? This would be the words the and my, respectively relating to the book and the favorite author. So let's take a look at the other side of the coin, verb phrases. How about a sentence like, Bob is fixing us some breakfast. Thanks, Bob. So what would this verb phrase be? Most of this sentence is actually the verb phrase, is fixing us some breakfast. What you'll notice is that there is actually a noun phrase within this verb phrase. I know, confusing. But remember, I warned you that syntax is complicated and you're still here, so you kind of got yourself into this mess. Not my fault. But anyway, yes, the phrase some breakfast is a noun phrase composed of the determiner some as well as the noun breakfast. This noun phrase acts as a direct object of the verb phrase is fixing us. And since we have the word us here, it acts as a kind of indirect object because the breakfast is being fixed for us. To complete the sentence, we simply add our subject, Bob, to our verb phrase, and then we get a complete sentence composed of a subject and predicate, aka verb phrase. So, back to ambiguity. I'm all over the place today. So, where does syntax develop ambiguous meaning? To determine this, let's look at a couple sentences as examples. Carl ate the mangoes in the dining room. What does the sentence mean to you? Think about it for a minute. Does it mean that Carl was in the dining room when he ate the mangoes? Or does it mean Carl ate those mangoes which were in the dining room? You see how this is ambiguous? Well, okay, yeah, but why exactly is it ambiguous? Well, the answer to this comes down to the difference between noun phrases and verb phrases. If we take the former meaning of the sentence, where Carl was in the dining room and was eating the mangoes there, then the chunk of the sentence in the dining room acts as a prepositional phrase that describes Carl's action of eating the mangoes. If we choose to understand the sentence with this meaning, then the in the dining room prepositional phrase becomes a part of the overall verb phrase, ate the mangoes in the dining room. Boom. Okay, so then what's the deal with the second way to understand this sentence? I'm hoping you didn't already forget it, but if you did, that's fine. The second meaning says that the mangoes were in the dining room and Carl ate those mangoes which had been in the dining room. In this case, the sentence chunk in the dining room refers to the mangoes, not to Carl's eating. So in this case, we could form a noun phrase reading the mangoes in the dining room, and then we add our verb ate, then our subject Carl, and we get a sentence meaning that Carl ate the mangoes which were in the dining room. Let's look at another sentence like this. Teresa saw Edward wearing her new glasses. Can you tell how this one is ambiguous? Take a second, think about it. Okay, is Teresa wearing new glasses and seeing Edward through those glasses? Or did she see Edward wearing the new glasses on his own face? If you're able to, try and find some more ambiguous sentences. I'm sure you come across some in your day-to-day -day life and now hopefully you know how to spot them. Whew, okay, so that was a lot, a lot, a lot about syntax, and I can totally understand if you're feeling overwhelmed by that, and to be honest, I kind of am too. You might notice it took me kind of a long time to make this episode because my brain started to feel like soup after hours spent working on the script. However, it's finally done now, and hopefully it leaves you knowing much more about the uniqueness of the sentences that are said on the daily. At the end of the day, when it comes to syntax, just know that language is probably one of the most creative aspects of being human, and new sentences and phrases that have never been said before are being uttered at this very moment. 
In fact, the very next sentence you say, you may never have even said before. For example, if you said something that is a cold, hard lie, like, I think 2020 is going well so far. And let's be real, I can guarantee that sentence has never been said. But that's the way it is for now, so we'll do our best to get through it. And who knows, maybe learning more about language is helping you do just that, get through it. Thanks for tuning in today, and be sure to check out my next episode, which is going to cover a fun topic that people really like to debate on frequently. That is the question of, is there a right way to speak a language? Keep thinking about syntax and all its complexity and ambiguity, and as always, I will see you next time.